Well, I'd like you to think about as we get ready to look at the church at Laodicea this evening, I'd like you to imagine that you've been invited to have dinner with Jesus Christ tonight. Now, just think about that. I, um, I read a book not long ago about, it was entitled Dinner with a Stranger, and it was an imaginary story that a man wrote about, you know, the busyness of his life and everything that was going on, and that Christ came and had dinner with him, and he didn't realize until the end. It was a fascinating book, an imaginative book, but I, I love to be invited to your house. I'm not hinting, but if you decide, I'm, I'll be there. I love to be invited to you. I like going to your house better than I do going to a restaurant, you know? And having dinner and sitting around and talking. Some of your houses, I've gone to sleep in your house. And y'all gone to the other room and talk because if it gets much past 8 o'clock, I'm no good for anything. And so, um, but imagine having dinner with Jesus. And imagine what would you have a conversation and what would you talk to Christ about? And what are things on your heart and mind? If you were just to kind of dream about that, think about that, what would you want to do? So tonight what we're going to look at is that Jesus gives a dinner invitation and a dinner invitation that can change the life of a church. It can change the life of the individual that accepts this invitation. It can change our church. It can change you tonight if we listen carefully to this passage. This Laodicean passage, as I'll share with you as we go through it, there are a lot of people who believe that this passage in particular speaks more relevantly to the Western church today, the church of North America, Canada, Europe, perhaps in any of the other seven letters that there's more relevance that it has to our lives than any of the rest of them. And so when I look at this tonight, and I imagine having dinner with Christ, I think the thing that comes to my mind, and after I read the letter, then maybe you'll, you'll understand why this comes to my mind, because I walk away from this letter and I go, is it possible? I called each of my sons tonight that live away from home uh, before I had a counseling appointment for the service tonight, but I called each of them to, to tell them what I'm about to tell you. When I read this letter and I let the Holy Spirit speak to me, is it possible that, that, that I could lose my fire for Christ? Is it possible that I could lose my passion for Jesus Christ? Is it possible that I could just begin to go through the motions of being a Christian without really, really engaging in that intimate fellowship with Christ? And I think this letter is an absolute yes. It's not only possible but if we're not careful, it's probable that that will happen inside of our lives. So I wrote a couple of things down tonight. If that happens to me, how do my prayers become fervent again? If that happens to me, how do I become passionate about following Christ again? If that happens to me, how do I, how do I regain that freshness, that fresh love and passion for Jesus Christ? I know that Becky and I can never go back to where we were at when we, were, when we started dating and because we were so young. And I, I kind of sat down and played through some of the things in my life. We were so young then and so much in love as we, as we began to date, as we knew that we loved each other. Our love has matured. Our love is fresh. But sometimes people will ask, and you that have good marriages, you've had to say the same thing. If you have a good marriage today, it's because you've worked at keeping that marriage fresh and alive and that love passionate. Can you say amen to that? It's, it's true of any human relationship. So how could I regain, as we looked at the very first church in this series of seven, how could I gain that, that 
that first love. I think it's important also before we read this letter to have a little background. And there's quite a number of people, uh, our shut-in folks especially who can't be here who are listening to these messages online. And then we have quite a number of people out of state and in our community that have told me they're listening to these messages online. And so I, I, I don't want to bore you, but I think it's important to understand just who were the Laodiceans and what was the Laodicean church. Uh, those of you that studied, you know, ancient history, you know about the River Lycus. It's set upon the River Lycus. It was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was about 40 miles uh, south of Philadelphia, and it was also very close to Colossae. As a matter of fact, uh, the church in Laodicea is mentioned several times in the book of Colossians. As a matter of fact, after the epistle was read in Colossians, in, in the church at Colossae, Paul says, take this letter and read it also to the church in Laodicea as well. Laodicea was a very interesting city. It was a very wealthy city. It was a city known for its black wool. There were a lot of shepherds that herded black sheep. They made a lot of woolen carpets. They made a lot of woolen clothes. Uh, that's going to play in in a few moments. When you read the letter, you'll understand why that's important. It was a city of banking and commerce. But it was a city also because they, they worshipped so many deities. We know that they had temples there to Apollos. We know that they had temples there to Escapolis, who was the, the, the god of medicine. We know that they worshipped a lot of deities. Um, it's where the eye self or the eye ointment that you'll read about, it came from. It was a very multi- uh, religious or multicultural society, but unlike a lot of places it was built, Laodicea was built on a plateau. If you've ever been to Mesa Verde and you've just gone up on top of Mesa Verde to the, where the cliff dwellers were at, you know what I'm talking about, you just keep traveling. It wasn't put there because of its natural resources. It was put there because of a trade route. And if you've ever, those of you who lived in Europe, and some of you have, you know how castles were built along rivers or in the middle of rivers so you could control trade routes. Laodicea was not built like most cities were built because of the available natural resources. They had to build aqueducts to bring their water in, and the aqueducts for a number of miles were put underground, but the last part to get up that plateau, they had to put them above ground, and we know from excavation that they were full of lime deposits and the water was yucky. That's going to play a part in understanding why Jesus will talk to the Laodiceans the way that he talks to them. Imagine what he would say to Detroit. Imagine what he would say to Brownstown or Woodhaven. All of this is important to really understanding, and as I've said, understanding these seven church letters is important to everything else that follows along here. But you also get the picture, and this is kind of hard because this is why I opened up the way I did. You get the picture, if you think of the church as a bride, you get the picture of a spoiled, blind bride, immature bride. Someone that, how could they have lost their passion for Jesus so quickly? How could they have lost their passion for the Lord so quickly and Jesus have such a stern rebuke for this church? You've got to remember, this is a, still not that long after Jesus, John is still alive. So how could they have that? How could they become so self-satisfied? How could they become so complacent? John Stott wrote about them. He said, it describes 
what has happened so much, he's talking about the Laodiceans, he says it describes what is happening so much in the church in the West. A church that outwardly looks respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity. Our Christianity in the West has become flabby and anemic, and we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. The church needs zeal, heat, fire, and passion. These are the qualities we lack today and we desperately need, and that was in a classic book that he wrote called What Christ Thinks of the Church. That statement encapsulates the Laodicean church, and I think in some ways encapsulates where the church in the West is, particularly today. The West is an affluent church compared to the third world churches that I've preached in and been in. We're a powerful church politically compared to the, some of the third world churches that I've been in. But we lack the power and the passion and the zeal and the willingness to sacrifice all for the name of Jesus. Because church is convenient for us when for many Christians that Christ was writing to, church was anything but convenient. And the reason that it was convenient was because they were compromising with the world rather than taking up their cross and following Christ. The message never changes from generation to generation. We still have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Amen? So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for the word of the Lord. And let's read this short epistle. Uh, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen. That's the only time Jesus is referred to as the amen in the book of Revelation. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things that you do, that you're neither hot nor cold, and I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I want you to capture something here because... Most versions use the word spew or spit. The word literally means vomit. I will vomit you. It's in other words, he's saying, and Peterson captures this in the message, he says, you make me sick. Now, that's not what we want to hear Jesus say to Woodland, is it? Huh? No, we, we pray not. But that's what he's saying to this church, and it is a shock to them. He says, you make me sick. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me. Then you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. Now, those are three things that they feel like they're very rich in gold and garments and the eye salve. I mean, uh, the, the phyrogean powders that they made the eye salve out of were known around the known world at that time. There was a lot of commerce that came there for that. And it had to do with their worship of Escapolis. So then you'll be able to see. So I correct and discipline everyone I love. That's an important sentence. I correct and discipline everyone I love. He's not this angry God. He's not this angry Jesus. He's not like some of the preachers that I grew up with that, you know, you didn't dare sit on the first three rows because when they preached, they were so angry, you get spit upon, you know. He is, he's, there's anger here. But his anger is coming out of love, the way, same way it would for a child, the same way it would for your son or daughter if they were going astray. 
I discipline everyone I love. So be diligent. Turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door. Now, remember, last week we talked about doors that Jesus opens. This week we're looking at a door you and I are going to have to open. And that's an important phrase to capture right after the Philadelphian church. There's a door that you have to open, a door I have to open. There's a door that we as a congregation have to open. I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. This is not an angry Jesus. This is a Jesus that means business, though. Those who are victorious will sit with me on the throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. And anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Listen to this from the book of Colossians. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea. This is Paul writing. He says, I have been agonizing over you. In Colossians 4.13, he says, I can assure you that he prays hard for you. He's talking about the founding pastor of this church and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. In Colossians 4.15, please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. The book of Colossians, if you want to understand this letter, and, you know, it took me a long time to preach through Colossians, but if you want to understand this letter, you need to read the book of Colossians. Because it just fits together and will help you understand the book of Revelation. And Colossians is a very short book. But what he wrote to the Colossians, he was writing to the Laodiceans because of a horrible error that takes place. And it all comes in the first, first uh, sentence of this letter. One more verse from Colossians. After you've read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea. And you should read the letter I wrote to them. That's Colossians 4.16. Father... We thank you for this book that gives us hope, and it's all about your son Jesus and the worship that he is worthy of. So I pray tonight that God, as we dig into this letter, I ask you to help us to hear what you're saying to us today in this letter, but you'll also help us, Lord, as we prepare to begin to work through all these fascinating prophecies in the book of Revelation. For it's in Jesus' name I ask and pray tonight. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated and let's get along. Well, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the amen. He's the assurance of all of his promises to us. God's word and God's promises aren't based upon anything other than his name and his reputation. When you say the word amen, as I've shared with you before, it's, it's like saying truth. It's, it's really another word for truth. It's so be it. Let it be done. It's, when we say amen, and sometimes you'll hear me go amen, amen, and amen, I, I want us to go, yes, God, we want your will to be done in this place. When you come to the end of a prayer, you say, and the reason you say amen is because you believe you're praying truth. You believe you're praying according to the will of God. You know that you shouldn't pray for anything outside of the will of God. We know that he hears us when we pray, and we know that if we pray about anything according to his will, then we can have the thing that we pray for. So we say amen because it's true, and we're saying, Lord, let it be. When Jesus says he is the amen to this church, he's setting them up, and he's preparing them, and he says, all all the promises that I've made to you, they're based in me, and you can be assured that they will come about because of my word to you. I'm about, I'm about, now listen, I'm about to say some tough things to you, but I want you to know before I tell you these tough things, Laodiceans, I want you to know before I tell you these tough things, Dennis, before I tell you these tough things, Woodland, I want you to know that I love you 
and that I will keep my promises. I will stand on my word. There is nothing that I said I wouldn't do that I, would, that I will not do for you. So he, he reminds us where everything is headed. If Jesus is not the goal of your life, Christianity will never satisfy you. If you become a Christian because you want to get rich, if you become a Christian because you want to be socially popular, if you become a Christian because you want to be wise or smart, all of those things can happen for you when you follow Christ. Some of those things may not happen for you because Christ may take you down a a different path. He may take you to a place where you're a martyr like Stephen was. But the point of the matter is, if Jesus is not everything that you want, it's the reason that I said Genesis was about God, God, God. Revelation is about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If Jesus is not all you want, then this book nor Christianity will ever satisfy you because our whole heart and goal for our marriage or everything has to be for Jesus. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, this is a message from the one who is the amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding, say it with me, yes, and through our Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Second thing I want you to see is that Jesus is faithful and true, and he emphasizes, he emphasizes the certainty of his promises. In other words, he's saying, I'm worthy of your trust. He's saying, I am worthy of your confidence. I am worthy of your faith. I am worthy of you putting your trust in me. We all know people who aren't trustworthy. Can you nod your head? I mean, there's no need to raise your hand. We all have been betrayed by people. We all know what it means to have friends that have betrayed us. Some of us, unfortunately, have had people very close to us betray us. But Jesus is saying that I am faithful and I am true. There's no mixed motives in Christ. He loves me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. He is the faithful and true witness. In Revelation 21, 5, he will say, look, I am making everything new to me. And he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And then Revelation 22, 6, he says, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord is God. Our God inspires his prophets and he has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. The second thing, and now you'll see where I'm joining Genesis and Revelation. If you remember, I told you all through, we spent two and a half years with Genesis. Everything you find in Genesis, you're going to find, those first three chapters of Genesis, you're going to find in Revelation. And we talked about, we titled the whole series, Origins. When Jesus makes this next statement, he is saying to us, he is the beginning and the origin of all things. And that was the era for the Colossians. They wanted to say that Jesus was a created being. There was a certain group of people that felt like that Jesus could not be God because he was also man. And there was a certain group of people that felt like their mystical experiences were much more important than what the Bible was, what the Old Testament was that they had delivered at that time, or what the letters that Paul would have written them. And so they would, they would have these mystical experiences, and we've talked about some of those things that could happen at those temples before. And the the word that they were really into was gnosis. That's the Greek word for knowledge. That's where you get the word Gnostics from. That's where you get people like Dan Brown writing from. Some of his most popular books that he's written has all been based upon Gnosticism. So it's not an error that's ever gone away. It's an error that is still with us. If you really want to understand more about this, read John chapter 1 and read 1 John 1, where over and over we see that Jesus is the source of all things. Never forget, our God is one God who reveals himself as, say it with me, Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. One more. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It may be a great mystery, but that's exactly who he is. Revelation 3.14, he's the beginning of God's new creation, or the origin. That word, more correctly, is origin. That was the word that the emperor claimed. In other words, the emperor says, I'm the beginning of all power, the Roman emperor. I'm the beginning of all power. I'm the beginning of all authority. He says there's lots of rulers. There's rulers of Laodicea. There's rulers of Sardis. There's rulers of Philadelphia. There's rulers of Jerusalem. But I'm the big cheese. I'm the number one ruler. And so that's why they had to offer that pinch of sacrifice that we've talked about in these series of letters. That pinch of sacrifice that said Caesar is Lord, just like we would say Jesus is Lord, is because he was claiming to be the origin of all things, which is the same error that Pharaoh was making. Isaiah 41 verse 4, look at this. Who has done such mighty deeds, summoning each new generation from the beginning of time? It is I, read it with me, the Lord, the first and the last, I alone am he. Look at Isaiah 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. Read it with me, please. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O family of Jacob, Israel, my chosen one. Read it with me, please. I alone am God, the first and the last. Well, let's look at what that error was in Colossians. Paul addresses it with a confession of faith that most of you could probably repeat. But read this out loud with me. Christ is the invisible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see, the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Somebody say amen tonight. Hallelujah. Give him a hand of praise. Yes. You're going to see that almost all over again in Revelation chapter 4. You're going to see that almost all over again in several places in the book of Revelation as Jesus is worshipped. So what is it saying here? That Number one, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and he's the light of my life. That's exactly what they're saying there. Jesus is the way. He's the, Caesar's not the way. Caesar is not the origin of all things. Christ is. Everything has its beginning in Christ. We spent two and a half years looking at the beginning of creation, looking at the calling forth of the Messianic tribe of Israel. We looked at all of that. And now we're coming here and we're looking at the prophetic ending of time, what's going on in heaven, and how the church should live and worship on earth. In other words, as I said earlier, Jesus is the goal of my life. After that, then Jesus gets into the tough part of the Laodicean letter, the part that a lot of people don't like to read because he rebukes the Laodicean church for their self-deception due to their mind-numbing pride. And I didn't know any other way to write it than that because the more I soak in that letter and read that letter, I can see people who have deceived themselves People who deceive themselves of somehow or another thinking that things that God says are clearly sin, they call it good, and they call it holy, and they call it righteous. 
thinking of things that God says that if you do these things, you will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And then people with clerical vestments on and the sound of religious music and sunlight pouring through stained glass windows attempt to bless what God has called evil and sin. And people are numbed in their pride somehow or another because it looks right and it smells right. There is a danger that Paul warns us of where we can have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. There's the power, there's the, the form that happens in a church that does everything technically correct. Their doctrine is correct. Their practice is correct. But they have no heart for Jesus because they really don't sense a need for Christ. It's one of the reasons why, knowing that you would be here tonight, that I built our communion meditation Sunday morning around the woman who pressed through the crowd until she could touch Christ. God is looking for people who want to touch him. God is looking for people who want to know him. God is looking for people who are willing to take up their cross and follow after him. Not a Sunday morning faith when I feel like it, not a Sunday morning religion, not a check in the church offering once in a while, but people who say, Jesus, you are the goal of my life. No matter what happens, no matter what comes, I want you more than anything. Look at verse 15 with me. I know all the things you do that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. Now, let me stop right there. I don't think, and you can disagree with me on this if you want to, but I'm still right, okay? I don't think what he's saying here is that if you're hot, you're hot for Jesus. And if you're cold, you're cold. Because there are some times when I want a good hot cup of coffee. And then there are some times when I want a good glass of iced tea. Okay? When I'm hot and I've got done with a run, the last thing I want is a cup of coffee. The first thing I want is a big glass of ice water with some lemon squeezed into it. You follow what I'm saying? That's what he said. I would that you were either hot or cold. In other words, that you could refresh or you could warm somebody else up. You could refresh somebody that's weary and hot from the journey and the battle or else someone that is cold, if they get next to you, they're going to get on fire. It's like putting a piece of wood back into the fire that's rolled out of the fireplace or rolled out of the campfire. It gets cold and it's all gray and ashy, but when you slide it back in the fire, in a few minutes you see it glow and it begins to burn. I want Woodland to be the kind of church that when people come here, if they're weary, they find us to be refreshingly cool like a glass of iced tea, or if they're cold and indifferent in their spirit, they get on fire when they come to this church. That was pretty quiet right there. <laughs> Is it just me that wants that? I don't want us to be the nice church because the nice church makes Jesus puke. Pardon me, but that's exactly what the word means. He said, I wish that you were one or the other, but since you were like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I mean, that is not the Jesus that I'm used to seeing. I mean, I'm used to Jesus talking to Pharisees like that, not to us, right? I'm used to Jesus talking to hypocrites like that, not to us. But he's talking to us here. These letters are for us. He says, you say I'm rich and I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Underline that. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
Much, much further down the road in this series, we're going to come to Revelation chapter 18. We're going to talk about Babylon. We're going to talk about Mystery Babylon, Babylon the Great. Look at what God says about Babylon in Revelation 18 and verse 7. In her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. See, Babylon is that spirit in the world today that says, I don't need God. I don't need anything. I don't need religion. I don't need a crutch. I've got everything I need. And yet God says there will come a time when he will judge. Listen, friends, every society, every nation, and including ours, eventually runs its course. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I believe, like Hezekiah, as long as there's a fervent, fiery church in America that will seek the face of the Lord. And when I say fervent, I don't mean people who have my personality, but I mean people who are sold out, passionate followers of Christ. And whatever your personality is, and whatever you do, our goal is to glorify Christ in all we do. Then America will prosper. Israel boasts in Hosea chapter 12, Israel boasts, I am rich, I've made a fortune all by myself. No one has caught me cheating and my record is spotless. And God just kind of pulls back the sheets. God pulls back the covers. My hometown had a mayor that would uh, go to churches and sing, especially prior to the elections, and he'd show up, and all of a sudden there was a scandal where it was exposed, and he was called on tape, you know, and swearing and crooked business deals that he had done, and it scandal that embarrassed my hometown so badly that even back in those days, CBS News was a pretty big deal, and I can remember watching the CBS News with my daddy, and my daddy just being so angry because this man who had purported himself to be something was totally something else. It's like he thought he had it all covered up. Friends, understand something. Unconfessed and unrepented of sin, there will come a time where God will pull back the covers on that. And that's what God is doing to this young church before it is in danger of losing its place. And that's what he's doing. He loves them. Lukewarm, what does that mean? When we talk about lukewarm, I think lukewarm can be defined in several ways. And let me talk. I think lukewarm is when we come to church and we really like the moral teaching we get, but we don't do anything about it. I think lukewarm is when we come to church and we say, God, save lost people. We never build relationships with lost people. I think lukewarm is when we come to church and we pray at church, but we never go home and we pray with our families or we never pray alone. I think lukewarm is when we come to church and we can win Bible drills and Bible quizzes, but we never take it to heart to obey and follow the Word of God. I think lukewarm is when we come to church and we agree that we ought to help and encourage one another, but we never get involved to help somebody else in the body of Christ. I think lukewarm is when we come to church in any way, shape, or form, and we go, yes and amen. That's true, but I don't have time to be bothered with that. You see, lukewarm doesn't have to do with how lively your worship service is. Jesus is speaking to a church that probably never thought this would happen to them. Jesus is speaking to a church that probably never thought that this is the kind of word because this was a wealthy church. This was a good church. One of my mentors, one of mine and Becky's mentors, I should say, mentored us both together, was invited to the church that was the number one missions-giving church in the Assemblies of God, one of the largest churches 
pastored by one of the executive presbyters of the Assemblies of God. And the night before, the Lord spoke to them in a very clear way and gave them a word and says, God, I can't preach that. And God took them to the scriptures and got up the next day in this church where the general superintendent had just been there and told them what a great church they were and all the missions giving that they had done. And they delivered that word to the church and the pastor was the first one to fall on his face crying out and the church followed crying out to God in repentance. And happy to tell you that that church repented because they had become complacent, wealthy on city blocks and was well financed in everything you could imagine. Never, ever think for one time, we're going to have a great business meeting. We're going to have a great annual business meeting here. We're going to give God thanks for what he's done in our church. But never think for one time that God is proud of us because of the buildings that we built. God is proud of us because of our giving or God is proud of us because of anything that we do for ourselves here. God is proud of us when we seek to honor him in all we do and we go out to reach the lost and build and encourage one another in faith. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? I've got a little video I want you to watch here. Um, he says to the church in Revelation 3.2, he says, wake up, you have only a little strength left. It's almost gone, so try to become stronger. I have found that you're not completely obeying God. The first time I saw this movie, I read the book, but it never hit me the way I saw it when I saw this movie. And... Um, I want to run this little video if, if, if we're ready. The whole clip, if you watched it, is several minutes long. The little guy that you saw trying to get away, his name is Warm Tongue. The same type of language that C.S. Lewis used in one of his allegories. But Theoden is the king. Theoden is a man whose mind has become blinded, become numb. And if you watch the movie, you remember how bland his eyes almost had this blind, glassy look over them. But what had happened was Wormtongue had told him so many lies for so long that he had believed them and imbibed those lies and had become powerless and impotent as a king. There was a sense that his people, those young men that you saw in the background were the horse riders of, of of Theoden and his kingdom, and they were protecting the borders. They were protecting, there was a group of people there that really cared about the kingdom, but they were loyal to the king. There's a sense when I read this letter that I go, this pastor has got to be somewhat responsible because God says right to the angel of the church of Laodicea, this pastor must have somehow gotten discouraged or somehow or another gotten caught up with the things of the world. It's not that God didn't have a people in that church, but this pastor himself, sometimes the weight of life as a father or a mother or a business leader or a school teacher or a principal, sometimes the weight of life, and if you listen to the wrong voices, if you listen to the voices of the world, if you listen to the voices of discouragement, you will start going through the motions. You may still be in charge. You may still be the one that's supposed to be leading, but your mind becomes numb, and you become soft, and you become indolent, and you become ineffective. 
It's what happens to people when they turn to drugs. It's what happens to people when they turn to immoral relationships. It's what happens to people when they turn to watching hour after hour of television. In our day, it's when they turn to hour after hour of the internet or Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is that we immerse ourselves in. For some people, it can be reading novel after novel, or it can be just spending time all day long and being a gym rat. Whatever it is that numbs your mind to the responsibility. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for the glory of God and our sword is the word of the Lord and God's word has not changed through the generations. If the church will use the word of God, we will see the power of God at work in our lives again today. And that's the point that he's trying to drive home to the Laodicean church. In the story, Gandalf is called by a warm tongue He's called the storm crow. In this story, Jesus is the storm crow. Jesus is coming in, and Jesus is waking this church up. He's waking this pastor up, and he's telling them that your lukewarmness is spiritually and emotionally sin. You have got to examine yourself before God. You have got to take time to look at your life. Warren Wiersbe said this, Why is it new Christians always create problems in the church? You can go ahead and put that. I must examine myself before the Lord. I've got to pick up the pace a little bit here. And then the quote, why is it new Christians always create problems in the church? Then he follows it up. They don't create problems. They reveal them. They don't create problems. Let me ask you this. How many of you can remember when you had your first child? That changed life, didn't it? If you're like Becky and I, six months later, we had a second child. They didn't create problems. They revealed problems. Okay? How many of you remember when you had teenagers? They didn't create problems. They revealed problems. Where was that nice, sweet little child? All of a sudden, life changes. How many of you remember when that wise, godly daddy of yours became an elderly, feeble man who couldn't think very well and you had to take his keys away from him and he fought you over taking his keys and sometimes he didn't create problems, he reveals problems because every time those problems reveal, they have to do with our comfort and how we wish that life could be like this or like that when we are here to serve Christ and we're here to serve one another, which means I've always got to diligently seek the Lord. Here's what I want to suggest to you tonight, not suggest, but here's what I want to say to you tonight that the scripture says, Jesus offers to them what they thought they already had. Jesus offers to them what they thought they already had. He said, I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Now, wait a minute. They were famous for the banking industry. Gold? They had lots of gold. We still excavate gold coins at Laodicea. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me. Their garments made out of that black wool were so luxurious, the people that made them couldn't afford them. They were highly coveted and highly valued. The carpets that they made out of that black wool were highly coveted and highly valued. He says, and buy garments for me. And by the way, those garments were white as compared to black. The stark difference between black and white that's often used in art or in painting. Jesus takes the one and says, buy for me garments that are white. White garments were the garments of slaves. 
White garments were not the garments of the rich. So you'll not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes. They were famous for their eye salve. So you'll be able to see. What's he saying here? He's saying that the real gold of life, the real gold of life is the true riches that comes when your faith is tried by fire. That's the real gold of life. And isn't that what the scripture teaches us? The real gold of life is that that comes through when we go through the fire and it purifies our faith, it refines us, it, it causes us to become more like Christ. We, we learn what it means to suffer for the glory of God and not complain about our suffering. It's the kind of fire that happens when you grow in a marriage relationship and you don't just get along, but you learn how to love each other and you learn how to encourage one another. It's the kind of thing that happens in a church where we don't just know the back of one another's heads, but we meet in small groups and we love one another. It's what enables us not just to be in the presence of God when we come to this altar, but it enables us to live and to walk in the presence of God. If you read what I posted this morning, that we can be walking and living daily and find a boldness and strength. The fire will reveal where I'm weak at. God allows fire in my life so that the weakness of my life can become tempered and it can be strong. The fire of faith, it probes me. Dennis, are you going to serve me because you have success? Are you going to serve me because people like you? Are you going to serve me because, you know, of your comfort? Are you going to serve me if I take all of those things away from you? Years ago, we went through the book of Job together. Do you remember what Job said? He says, though he slay me, yet shall I serve him. And yet, how many today look to Jesus? There's all kinds of books. How Jesus can make you rich. How Jesus can make you successful. How Jesus can make you popular. Jesus is not about making you rich, successful, or popular. There's nothing wrong with all of that. Jesus is all about you making him Lord of your life. Amen. That's what this book is all about. It's what makes the victorious song of the martyrs so powerful. But here's the deal. When God puts eye salve on you, it kind of blurs your vision for a little while. I have a real weakness in my life. I cannot stand for anything to be put in my eyes. I've never willingly put a drop of Visine into my eyes. I got an ear infection, not an ear infection, but an eye infection. It took Amy and Ben and Christopher to hold my eye open. I wasn't kicking, I wasn't, I just can't do it. And when I get my eyes examined once a year, you know how they do the into your eye? I tell them, I say, don't you tell me that you're going to do that or my eyes won't stay open. They just shut on their own and they'll say, open. I say, I can't. So they always sneak up on me, you know, and attack me and just... And, and I just, I don't know why I'm like that, but I can't, I could never wear contact lenses. The idea of sticking something in my eye, just terrible. The other day, Belinda, or she's not here tonight. They've been here on Wednesday nights. Belinda Cosby got a piece of metal in her eye and John took a magnet and held it over her eye and snatched it out with a magnet. And I was like, you know, Mark, I would have had one of your fits there. You know, I would have just died. You know, I just, I could not believe that. But what happens is, when you put the medicine in your eye, you get blurred. You put this out, you can't see. That's what I wanted you to see. Even when Theoden's mind was becoming clear, again, he looks at his daughter, Eowyn, and he says, I know you. I know your face. 
when a blind man gets his sight, listen to this, they don't handle it very well. They're not used to light. They're not used to color. They have lived their lives in darkness and they have developed other senses. And in those cases where they've been able to help a blind man through an eye transplant or through surgery or something to get their sight, they have deep emotional problems because they're not used to handling everything. A child is just the opposite because a child hasn't developed those senses the way a man has. And the kingdom of heaven is so different. If you don't believe me, go home tonight before you go to bed and don't read Colossians, read the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes will turn your world upside down. If the Beatitudes turn your world upside down, then your world is wrong side up. Now think about that. When Jesus says blessed or happier you if you do these things, they had made the mistake which I'm afraid a lot of people are doing today, and that is they evaluated themselves by the standards of Laodicea or the standards of the world rather than by the standards of the scripture, by what God had called them to be. Isaiah 55, one says, hey there, all who are thirsty, come to the water. Are you penniless? Come and buy anyway. Come and buy your drinks, buy wine and milk, buy without money. Everything is free. When Jesus says to buy from me gold, he's not talking about works. He's talking about what he can give you. So let me give you three application points here before we move on. Number one, whether you go to this church or whether you go to any other church, if you should move, I'm right now in correspondence with several families from our church that have moved to different parts of America right now. And the common thing I'm getting back is trying to find a church that they can worship in where the word is being preached and there's ministries like we had here at Woodland. You always want to be sure that you have a pastor who is a physician of the word of God to your soul. If the pastor doesn't preach the word, I don't care how wonderful the church is, that is not the church you need to be in. Same thing's true for me. I want to be a preacher of the word. I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody except for Becky. After I had talked with this board a couple of times in 1998 and then in 1999, I flew to Springfield where I was serving on a think tank and I met with Brother Trask and I met with um, his administrative assistant and I laid out everything that they had shared with me and told me there. They both looked at me and they says, the number one thing that we see coming from this board that they're wanting is somebody that can preach the word. And Brother Trash said, Denny, you can do that. The word of God, don't you ever, ever underestimate that. The word of God is the medicine to our souls that make us healthy. We build our lives not upon worldly principles, we build our lives upon biblical principles, whether it's marriage, business, relationship. I will never forget Amos Hudson when sitting down with him before he died, before I moved up here, this man who gave me the privilege of getting involved in his business, and he was a multimillionaire, owns oil wells and oil companies, fleets of trucks, refineries, and we looked at what the Bible said about finances, and we looked at what the Bible says about being a steward, and he told me, he says, I never knew any of this, and God totally changed his life and what a blessing he became to the kingdom of heaven and to missions and to others. When God changed the hard, cold heart of a man, 
A man that had a form of godliness and loved God, but I'll never forget him telling me, he says, I wish I had learned these principles when I was younger. You want the word. Number two, you gotta admit your need. Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, you don't realize what you have need of. And then the third thing is, you've got to trust him. You've got to trust Christ. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. You have the spirit of Christ living in you. You can read the word. And the source of Jesus' rebuke wasn't rage, but it was deep love. The source of his rebuke wasn't rage, but God loved them. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Has anybody ever thrown cold water on you when you were sleepy? Have you ever been laying at the beach and your child's come up and dumped a bucket of water from the ocean on top of you? You know what I'm talking about? What do you do? You jump, don't you? Have you ever been asleep and somebody's thrown water on you? If you went to Southeastern College, that happened to you quite a few times because we were notorious about going in and just dumping buckets of water on one another. Our air conditioners didn't have dorms. I mean, uh, our dorms didn't have air conditioners. And so, you know, we'd have these fans blowing on us and all of a sudden somebody would just come in and chunk a bunch of water on you. You'd come right out of that bed. Jesus is like throwing water on this church and waking them up. And what he wants for them is to respond to him with faith and love. You've always got to respond to Christ with faith and love. And then, honey, if you'll come on up. This to me is the most promised thing. This is why I said he's not an angry Jesus. He's a Jesus that loves. Jesus offers the intimacy of friendship over dinner. Jesus says, I want to have dinner with you. But you've got to open the door. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you, now he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the pastor. But we can take this personally as well because this is why in the beginning of the message, I called my sons. I wanted them to know what I was preaching on. I wanted them to know how important it is. I am proud that you're in church. I am proud that you're serving in ministries. I'm proud of everything you're doing. But it's important that you keep the door open, that Jesus is inviting you. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal. That word is the canal. It's the same word used for the evening meal. It's the same word used for communion. It's the same word that was used when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. Remember that intimate scene where he's there with his disciples? It, it's, it's, not, it's not like, let's, let's do lunch together. It's not like, Bob, you and I do lunch together and we're, at, we're in and out of there in 45 minutes, you know? He says, no, let's do the evening meal together. This is where we talk. This is where we kick back. This is where we do heart to heart. This is where we do life together. Jesus says, look at me. Don't miss this. He's saying, this is the kind of relationship I not only want with the church, but I want with you. It's the word used in John 12, verse 2. A meal had been prepared for Jesus. A meal had been prepared for Jesus. Mary and Martha. Lazarus was sitting with him. And we find him at their house an awful lot, don't we? Because Jesus knew he would always be welcome at Martha 
and Mary and Lazarus' house. He knew he'd always be welcome. We're going to come to this again in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9. The angel told me, put this in writing. God will bless everyone who is invited to the wedding feast, the canal of the Lamb. Well, Jesus offers then to give me power over darkness. That's important. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and I sat with my father on his throne. What's he saying? Remember when Jesus told the disciples, don't rejoice that demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Remember last week we talked about the Book of Life? Or two weeks ago we talked about the Book of Life being blotted out. He's saying to those that will open the door to me, it's not the assemblies of God that gives you power. It's not Woodland Church that gives you power. It's not the Roman Catholic Church or the Methodist Church. The shingle doesn't matter. It's your opening Christ. Next week, I'm going to sum these seven letters up. Because if you don't understand these seven letters, what happens afterwards, you'll never get. It's simple to understand. Once you understand, I'm going to give you a one-sentence summary of every one of these letters. And then we're going to say, what does that mean? Because the very next chapter, Jesus is going to say, come on up, Heather. And you want to hear that. You want to be part of that. But these first seven letters are so important. So here's the growth work that I'm going to ask you. I'm going to go through it quickly. I'm going to ask you to come join me and just spend some time in the altar. Verse 22 says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the church. First of all, self-sufficiency shuts my fellowship with Jesus out of my life when I'm self-sufficient. So this is the question I would ask myself, and we'll pray through these tonight. Have I cooled off? Have I compromised? Am I as fervent for the Lord as I used to be? As I'm fervent about serving Christ as I used to be? As I'm fervent about lost people as I used to be? Am I as fervent about discipleship? Or do I always find a reason? And if I was to stop and say, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Everything's good. My marriage is good. My bills are paid. I've got food on my table. I'm good. But if we're not taking and going out in our business life, in our family life, in our recreational life, if we're not serving and worshiping Him, if it's about God bless me, then we're in danger of becoming lukewarm. Jesus challenges me because I love Him. Is it hard for me to admit I have a need? It is for me. I'm just being honest with you. It is hard for me. I can't think of one time I've ever come to anyone here except to pray for my children and my grandchildren. That's hard for me. And I'm sure it's hard for a lot of men in this church because we're taught to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. Aren't we, guys? I mean, we're taught, you know, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You be a self-made man. Problem is, self-made men look a lot like Frankenstein. I want to be a God-made man, okay? So, am I just keeping the rules? Am I learning? Do I find myself feeding off of others' fellowship but not feeding off of Jesus and spending time with Him? Third thing I'd say, 
is the door to my heart closed to Christ? If it is, open that door up. Be like a child. Corey told that wonderful story a few weeks ago of how his children waited on all the students to get to his house. They'd have their noses pressed against the door, and when they saw the students coming to his house, they'd always go, they're here, they're here, they're here. I will never forget. Remember Mike? <laughs> Went to Mike's house, knocked on the door. The glass door was open. His little boy come running up the door, and he saw me. His eyes got about that big, and his mouth flew open. And he ran back in the house. He says, Daddy, Daddy, God's here. God's here. I love it. He knows now I'm not God, by the way. But fling the door open. Be like I'd say, Jesus, I don't even know how to open the door. So I hear you. I want you to come in. And then just come tonight and just search your heart and say, I want to follow him passionately. So would you come, bring your notes, and spend just a few minutes in the altar here this evening. And after you come, I'm going to lead us in a couple of prayers tonight. God, I would love for us to experience you in a way that we've never experienced you before. I ask you to go into those places, especially us guys, Lord, that maybe we've never allowed you before. (laughs) God, let you come into those parts of our heart. We've kept the door sealed so tight. either because it's uncomfortable or it would mean we were not in control or fear. Just ask you to come and search our hearts and search our lives tonight. Father, it grieves me to think that it's possible, but I know from reading your word, God, from just soaking in this letter, it grieves me to think that there are things in this life that you've blessed me with that if I'm not careful, Lord, that will hinder my fellowship with you. That will block the true blessings of the goal that has been tried in the fire. The true blessings of the garments of purity. The true blessings of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Lord. It gives me clear sight. So God, part of me goes, if there's any area where I've allowed myself to become deceived, uh, 
I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, heal me, heal us, and heal your church, Lord. We search our hearts tonight, Lord. We run to the door. God, we hear you knocking. We run to the door. Jesus is here. Oh, family, Jesus is here. You've waited and you've come to this altar. Jesus is here. God, we rush to let you in. We rush to say, come, Lord. Have dinner with us. Dine with us. What a blessing it is, O oh Lord, for you to come into our hearts, come into our lives and into our church. God, my heart just fills up with joy. My heart just fills and overflows with anticipation of what we will be like when Jesus fills our lives, when Jesus comes and dines with us, so Lord. God, when Jesus seated, Lord, in this congregation. We praise you, Lord. We pray that every power of hell will be shattered and broken, that broken relationships will be healed, that sick bodies would be healed, Lord. God, we pray tonight as we kneel in your presence. Lord, our church will be salt and light and God, that lost people will feel loved and welcomed here. Not just a building, but welcomed into our lives, oh Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I would encourage you while you pray this way, don't be afraid. Don't think that your weakness, don't think that maybe something God has convicted you of or convicted me of stops him from coming in. All he looks is for the open door and he'll do the rest. Welcome into this place, Lord. Welcome into this place. Welcome into this place. Welcome, Holy Spirit. Welcome, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Now press through. Be like that woman. Just press through. When you touch Christ, He'll fill your life.